Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a retired law enforcement professional with a distinguished career spanning 30 years. During his tenure with the United States Marshal Service, he was part of high-profile cases such as the trials of John Gotti, the World Trade Center bombers, and Timothy McVeigh. Upon retiring at the age of 52, he moved to Mexico and fell in love with San Miguel de Allende, where he initially settled before moving to Monterrey. He now serves the expat community by sharing his experiences of moving, living, and traveling to Mexico through his well-known YouTube channel, Retired Life in Mexico, No Bull. Please welcome to the show, Ernie Baca. Ernie, how are you? How are you doing, Mikhail? I'm doing great. Very good. Very good. I'm excited for today's conversation. There is a lot of ground to cover, and we were kind of chit-chatting beforehand about some of the things you've done in your life, so I'm very excited for this conversation. I guess to kind of start things off, maybe tell the audience just a little bit about your backstory. Well, Mikael, basically, I think you mentioned pretty much my backstory. I started off in federal law enforcement back in the late 80s. I started with the U.S. Marshal Service. I spent 10 years with them. And then I transferred over to an agency, uh, which now is known as Homeland Security Investigations. But at at that time, it was U.S. Customs. Previous to 9-11, I transferred over to U.S. Customs Investigations. I became a special agent with them. And of course, post 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was created. And they created an investigative agency, which is under Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is now known as Homeland Security Investigations. And they took all the uniform components and they put them over into what we know now as Customs and Border Protection, which is the Border Patrol and your Inspections Division of Customs. So I've lived pretty much all over the United States. I've done most of my career on the Southwest border in Texas. And I actually, with the Marshal Service, I started out in McAllen, Texas. I moved to Albuquerque, uh, Laredo, Texas, and then Albuquerque, New Mexico. And with the U.S. Customs Service, later on Homeland Security Investigations, I've been in Phoenix, McAllen, Brownsville, even did a stint in Washington, D.C. For my agency, I was part of the National Security Division in Washington, D.C., and also the Financial Investigations Division later. During my time with Homeland Security Investigations, I actually served three years overseas in Brazil as a diplomat, as a country attache. 
And also, while I was in Washington, I worked extensively when I was with the financial investigations divisions. We had a, several projects with Latin America. So I've worked extensively with, with the governments of Mexico, Panama, Colombia, Brazil, of course, Argentina, Paraguay. So we've, I've worked very extensively in South America and Latin America. So that's a little bit about my background. That's a lot to go through, a lot of experience. And and I definitely want to speak to you today about some of the safety things and your work over your career throughout Latin America. But because I know a little bit about your backstory, I want to actually focus really at the beginning of our conversation on the move to Mexico at first. And then we can kind of get into everything else because I think your story about moving to Mexico is really interesting and very much highlights some points that I think that people should understand. So maybe you can share with us that a little bit at first. Well, basically, Miguel, the way I moved to Mexico, it was quite by, I always say it's quite by accident. And the reason why I say it was quite by accident, I retired at 52 years old in my field we're kind of like on an accelerated retirement plan. And the reason why I say that is because we have mandatory retirement at 57. Basically, last year would have been the year I would have had to retire on my birthday if I would have gone all the way. And once you meet, but at the same time, you can retire at 50 with 20 years of service. One of the things that I decided was I decided to go early. Now, I decided to go early not because... I wanted to get away, away from the rat race or anything like that. I, I always make it clear. My dad always told me, find something you have a passion for and you'll never work a day in your life. And I can honestly say I never worked a day in my life. We had this old saying in, in the Marshall Service. It's an Ernest Hemingway quote. There's no hunting like the hunting of man. And those who have hunted men and enjoyed it have never cared for anything thereafter. And that was my career. I hunted bad guys. I was fun. I had a great time. But there came a point in my life at 52, my dad passed away and started reevaluating my retirement and wasn't a lot more money to stay to 57 than if I just retired at 52. Also, my family has a history of heart disease on both sides. My dad had a heart attack at 52. And if you look at statistics for law enforcement officers, most will get a heart attack within five to 10 years after they retired. So I actually had this feeling that I was going to end up with a heart attack at 60. So I better get to it at 52 because I'll only have eight years to do the things that I really want to do. And I got a lot of adventure with my job, but you got to remember that was my job. And I got to travel the world, but and I got to see so many things, but I got to the point where I wanted to see those things and do those things on my own terms. There's a big difference between, for example, going to Brazil and working and going on vacation. Or there's a big difference between visiting Bogota or visiting Cartagena and actually going there to see the thing. I mean, yes, I got to see all these things, but it was sort of like on my day off, on my off time. But going there on your own terms is totally different than working. So I decided to, to retire at 52. And my wife and I, we decided to start traveling. One of the first places we went was to Cartagena. The reason why I wanted to go to Cartagena is because I most of my traveling to Colombia was in actually to Bogota, because of course, all the main government offices are in Bogota. And Cartagena was one of the offices they actually offered me before I went to Brazil. So 
you know, it was one of these things where, you know, I want to see what would have happened if I would have gone to Cartagena instead of Brazil. And I started toying around, you know, my wife and I just started asking, oh, I wonder how much a condo here costs. And wouldn't it be great if we had like another third place to go to? I have a house in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we visit there a lot because my family's originally from New Mexico. And what if we go spend three months in Santa Fe and three months in Cartagena, for example, or Panama or Mexico and spend three months in Texas because we had just bought a house in Texas and then spend another three months in wherever in the world. So we kind of started playing with that idea, but we still were stuck with the comfort of living in the United States. So we started traveling and we weren't taking this seriously. My wife's actually a Mexican dual citizen. She also has a federal law enforcement background. We both retired from federal law enforcement. And what happened was she said, and she's from Monterrey. That's why I'm here in Monterrey now. I have family here. But she said, you know, I want to take you to this place because I have this, I have this thing for the Day of the Dead, you know, honoring your your loved ones on the Day of the Dead. And it's a very important kind of celebration for me. And she says, you know what? There's this place down in Mexico, down in central Mexico, that everybody gets dressed up on the Day of the Dead. There's this big parade. I need to take you there. It's a great place to vacation. So we said, okay, we're going to plan one of our trips there. So we planned one of our trips to San Miguel Allende. And we went with some cousins of ours. And they hadn't been out. They were living in Austin. They hadn't been out for a while. And and we were... I was enthralled with San Miguel. I, I fell in love with it. It's a little colonial town. It's beautiful. The architecture, everything. And it reminded me a lot of Bogota, actually, a lot of the colonial architecture and, and stuff. And so one day we're sitting there walking in the Centro and there's an advertisement for a housing development. And of course I said, hey, well, let's check it out. Let's see what happened. I know we're not going to buy a house, but well, let's just see what's available and how much it costs. Because they won't tell you, of course. They want, you know, we'll come pick you up and take you on the tour. And of course, I saw it as they're going to try to sell us a timeshare or whatever. So we'll just go for the, we'll go for the speech because it sounded too good to be true in the sense that they were going to come pick us up, take us to lunch, and then take us out to this housing development. So we did it. We went out to the housing development. And we saw a couple of model homes and we were like, wow, how much does this cost? And they said, well, they gave us a price and it was very affordable. And I said, well, okay, how much does it cost to reserve one of these places? And they said, probably the equivalent of 200 bucks. And I said, well, what if we, and then of course you have to make payments and we had the cash to buy it outright. And one of the things that really impressed me too was I lived in Texas. I had a $275,000 home, which I sold for a lot more later, but that at $275,000, my property taxes were close to $8,000 at the time. Ouch. And in San Miguel de Allende, my property taxes were going to be like 150 bucks. So I said, you know, if we buy this house, we don't really even have to live in it. I mean, we'll live in it part-time or whatever and come on vacation down here, but it's going to cost me next to nothing to maintain. So I said, okay. And then if I make hundred dollar payments and then when, I guess when they give you the house, you pay the rest, of course, and you actually do the, the final transaction. And I said, okay, what if we don't want it? Oh, we'll give you your money back. 
And I'm like, yeah, right. Uh, you know what? Even if we pay $700, we'll lose out on the $700. If we, some re- for some reason, want to cancel, we'll cancel. But I never expected the money back, to be honest with you. So we ended up signing a contract. We left San Miguel. We went on vacation and ended up signing the contract. And I ended up with a house. Yeah. Margarita Madness. I think I've lost <laughs> exactly <laughs> lots of Mexico, uh, lots of Americans come down to, from the U.S. to Mexico. And yeah, suddenly proud owners of a new home. And the thing is, Mikel, we never had the intention of actually moving to Mexico, but my youngest was finishing high school. And we actually got to travel back to San Miguel. And one of the things that we did was we started researching a little bit, not researching, but we stayed in Airbnbs in the area, in the little housing area where we were going to live. And we started noticing that a lot of the houses were very close together. They were, a lot of them were Airbnbs, a lot of people coming in from Mexico City, a lot of parties, uh, very loud on the weekends. So we started thinking, well, you know, well, we can put up with this. If we're only going to be here for a couple of months, and this is a nice little place. And one of the things that they had promised us was that our back patio was going to go into the pool. I mean, we were going to have this little back patio and then it was going to go into the pool and we were going to just walk out of our backyard, out of our back door and be at the pool. The problem is, is the way they planned the subdivision, it was a corner lot. So they weren't able to give us access to the pool. My backyard basically went into somebody else's apartment. So my wife said, no way. No way are we going to do this. And I said that too. It's like, you promised us to pool. And you know what? We don't want the house. And they said, okay, not a problem. When What about getting our money back? Not a problem. We'll give you your money back. We never expected our money back. But at the time, the little community that I live in, it's basically a large community with a nine-hole golf course And then within that community are separate little communities. So there's different Mm -hmm. housing and communities there. So we decided, let's just go look at other neighborhoods. Okay. So we did. And we ended up falling in love with another house in the same community, but in a different neighborhood, costing us double what we (laughs) had originally planned to spend. And one of the things that we did when we went back home, we called the guy, we told him how much is it going to be? How do we do this? We did negotiate a lot of negotiations over the phone. And one of the things I said to my wife is, why don't we just move there? Because the house that we're going to buy now is like double the size. It's, it's more something to live in. It's not something to go for three months. And my wife says, you know what? Let's go. So we did. We decided to move to Mexico and we just made that decision from one day to the next. And it just so happens that one of my wife's ex-coworkers reached out. She had a a WhatsApp group and they had somebody transferring into her old office and they needed a place to rent. It just fell at the perfect time. Said, we have a house here in Texas that they can rent. So the renters moved in and we basically moved out. Everything just fell into place perfectly. Wow. So with the new place that you guys ended up picking up, was it a pre-development as well or was it an already built property? That one was an already built property. That's like, like I said, we found, we actually, we went to the, the guard and the guard says, oh, that, that house over there is available and the doors open, go in. So we went inside and it's like, <laughs> we want it. <laughs> and 
we ended up the next day, we had to catch a flight the next day, actually, believe it or not. We caught the flight the next day and we were on the phone talking to the architect that built the place. And it actually turns out that the actual, not the architect, but the developer of that whole area, that whole neighborhood, they were the owners of the, the investors in the house. And we ended up having a very smooth transaction. Wow. Wow. So you get back to the States, you arrive, you decide you're making this move. And to kind of jump ahead a little bit, from my understanding, you decided you wanted to do a health check or something like that right before you left. Well, I'll tell you what happened, Mikhail. I started to feel like a lump in my throat, on the side of my throat. And I said, you know, I need to have this checked. And of course, I'll be honest with you, in the United States, we're always told that we have this, the best, most advanced healthcare system. So I, I really had this misconception that, you know, we're going to Mexico, so I better get this taken care of. Like, I'm going to get my healthcare taken care of in the United States. Not only that, but I had an insurance policy in the United States because uh, health insurance that covered me because of my retirement. So it was part of my retirement package. So, you know, why don't I just get it? taking care of now. So I went to the doctor, my general physician, and I said, you know, I've got this lump in my throat. The doctor was sitting there on his computer going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, yeah. Okay. You got a lump in your throat. What side? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I mean, didn't even look up from the screen. Wow. And the next question was, when's the last time we did your cholesterol? And I'm like thinking, okay, I got a lump in my throat. What does cholesterol have to do? Oh, a year ago. Okay. When's the last time we did a bone density scan? And he's looking down this list in the computer and I'm like, okay, I don't think I've had a bone density scan and I don't remember. Okay. When's the last time that you had x-ray, chest x-rays? And I'm sitting there thinking, my God, what does chest x-rays have to do with a lump in my throat? And at the very end, he says, okay, well, we're going to schedule, you said you had a lump in your throat, we'll schedule so a sonogram, it's a echogram is what they call it. So it's like a sonogram, like what they do with the babies and they put it on your throat to see inside you. And we'll put an echogram. They call it an echogram, not a sonogram. The sonograms for pregnant people. It's a different machine, but it does the same thing. So I said, okay. And then I'll see you in a week for all the results. Didn't touch my throat didn't do anything. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I'll schedule this sonogram. So I go to the, to the front where I'm supposed to check out and okay, next Tuesday, you're going to have your sonogram here or echogram here and you need to draw your blood. We'll take your blood here. Oh, okay. Those results will come back next week. And then the following week. So you're going to have to schedule two appointments, one for the results of the echogram and one for the results of the blood test. And oh, and also one extra appointment for the results of the bone density scan. And I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, not a problem. So needless to say, I went to all my appointments. My cholesterol was fine. My bone density was fine. And the next thing they said was, well, you have a lump in your throat. We did the, the echogram and it shows that you have a lump in your throat and it measures, I don't know how many millimeters. Okay, I could have told you that by just showing you. <laughs> so they said, next step is we're going to have to do an MRI. And I said, okay, fine. But here's the thing. The insurance has to pre-approve it. And that'll take 10 days. And then we'll call you when the insurance approves it. And then we'll make an appointment with the MRI center. Not a problem. Whatever. 
Now, granted, Mikael, this is already like three weeks in. Sure. Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, another 10 days, three weeks, not a problem. Well, we call in 10 days. The insurance company wants more information. So we had to send them more information to justify your MRI. Okay. Send in the information. Two weeks passes. Okay, what's going on with my MRI? Oh, well, the doctors are evaluating and they wanted more information on why you needed an MRI. And I'm, I'm like, you know, we're going on two months here. Why don't I just pay for the MRI? How much will it cost me for an MRI? I, uh, well, you need to call the MRI center and find out. So I called the MRI center. I said, look, I'm, I'll pay for it. I don't care anymore. I don't care if the insurance company says, no, how much is this going to be? Well, it depends. It'll run anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000. And I said, okay, but it depends on what area and everything we look at. And I'm, you know, I said, look, let me just schedule the MRI and can you get with my doctors so you can get to per whatever prescription or orders you need? And they said, yeah, not a problem. But the next appointment's two months out. And I'm sitting here thinking, you're kidding me, right? So I just went through two months trying to get my insurance to approve me. And then you're saying my insurance still hasn't approved me. But then you're saying I have to wait two months after my insurance finally approves me for an appointment. And they're saying, yeah, we're really busy. And, you know, we, sorry. And actually in defense of that area, I was in South Texas and it's very saturated with Medicare and Medicaid patients. So it is very believable that they are just overwhelmed because I've talked to people in Austin and other areas where they said, "Not I've got my MRI right away afterwards. But so my wife said, at that time we were visiting family here in Monterrey, we would come back and forth. And my wife's family's here in Monterrey. And we, she says, why don't we try a doctor over there? I mean, at least they can tell you what's wrong with you. So my wife did some research and she found a doctor the doctor happened to be a professor at the Tech, the Tech de Monterrey, which is one of the top universities. Actually, my wife graduated from the Tech. It's one of the Ivy League schools here in, in Mexico. She actually has her master's also from the Tech. And usually people from the Tech trust people from the Tech, <laughs> kind sure, of sure, like sure. The, the alumni thing. And my wife says, I found this doctor from the Tech. He's a professor at the Tech. He's a professor at the medical school. And actually, he actually practices out of the, the hospital, the actual hospital for the tech. And I said, okay, let's go. So she calls the doctor. Doctor says, oh, not a problem. I can see you tomorrow. Can you be here tomorrow? And we said, well, you know what? Can you give us like another day? Because we have to drive down from McAllen and we can spend the night at my in-law's house. And then we can see you maybe the day after tomorrow. We will drive up tomorrow. See you the day after. Okay. Not a problem. And he says, why don't we do this? I'll see you in the morning. And then depending on what test you need, maybe I can get an answer to you as quickly as possible. So I said, okay. So we went first thing in the morning to the doctor. The doctor says, yeah, you need an MRI. And he says, I'm going to send you to this place. And there's only one problem right now. The doctor that does the MRIs, that reads the, the radiologist is not in. He's on vacation. They might have another radiologist that's taking his place. So we might be able to get the results today. And I can see you tonight and tell you what the problem is. And if worse comes to worse, what we'll do is we'll just wait for the results. The latest they'll get them to you probably is tomorrow. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> how is this possible? <laughs> worst case scenario. Worst, worst case, case scenario. Worst <laughs> tomorrow. So I said, okay, fine. Not a problem. So we go to this MRI center, a professional center, everything else. I go get my MRI done. I'm pulling out my credit card. And they said, I don't even remember how many pesos it was, but it was about the equivalent to about 270 bucks. Dollars, dollars. $270 compared to four or $5,000 or $2,500 at the best case scenario in the United States. And the weird thing was, is I'm looking at this lady and I'm like, huh? Because I'm converting the pesos into dollars and I'm thinking, what, shouldn't there be another zero there? Like, you know, instead of 5,000, it should be, you know, 50,000. You know, I'm thinking, did you get it right? And I didn't tell her anything because I'm in shock. I'm in total shock. And I'm just sitting there with my credit card like this. And she's looking at me kind of like, is there something wrong? Did we do something wrong? And I'm like, uh, uh, no. How much did you say it was again? And she says, this is how much. And I said, oh, okay. And I tell the story and I say, you know, I think that lady to this day thinks that this crazy guy came into my office and because I just walked out, I put my credit card back in my wallet and I'm in shock. And I think that lady to this day thinks that I was crazy, that there was something wrong with me. So she told me the same thing as the doctor did. And she says, I'll tell you what, go have lunch. And I don't know if we can get it read today, but, you know, we'll let you know, we'll give you a call. So, oh, and. By the way, I didn't mention this, Mikel, but the doctor, when he said, let me know, he gave me his personal cell phone number. He said, just hit me up on WhatsApp. Yeah, And I'm like, okay. We have this on in Panama as well. I have my dental surgeon on WhatsApp. I have my family doctor on WhatsApp. We've got our specialist, the hospital, everybody on WhatsApp. And I can message them at like eight o'clock at night and they'll get back to you easy peasy. And sometimes they message and just check in on us. Like, how are you doing? How are the kids doing? It's like, I never, that would never happen in Canada. Like just not a chance. <laughs> exactly. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I don't have to call a nurse or, you know, cause you normally in, in the United States, you have to call the doctor and then they have to, well, the nurse has to talk to the doctor you never talk to the doctor except mm -hmm. for when you're there. And so I went to lunch and we're at lunch because there's this hospitals in an area called San Pedro in, in Monterrey. And there's this really fancy mall next to the hospital. And so we went to the mall, to the food court, not the food court. They have restaurants, actually the equivalent to a food court, you might say, but it's rest, different restaurants. So we went there to eat and we get this telephone call. Probably in about an hour later. Oh, guess what? The doctor, for some reason, he came in and he just decided to read your MRI since he was here. So we have your results for you. And I'm like, okay. So my wife gets on WhatsApp with the doctor and says, hey, you know what? We're here eating lunch. We're going to go pick up the MRI results. Can you see? Uh, don't worry. As soon as you get the MRI results, just come back to the to the hospital. So, and the MRI center was kind of far away. Well, of course, in traffic and everything else. So we finished eating. And here's the other shocking part is we get to the MRI center and they give me a disc. They give me the results. They give me everything in a package. And in the United States, I'm not used to that because in the United States, it's like, I need a copy. No, 
you need to get them sent and you need to uh, an authorization and I don't know what all. And the doctors keep this for privacy reasons. We can't release your medical records. And no, they gave me my medical records in my hand and said, you can take them to the doctor with you. And literally, I can tell you right now, just to, to go a little fast forward, I have all my re- medical records, all my blood test results, all of that. I have them in my own files, not in anybody else's files. Now, the doctors do keep them in their files too, but I have all the original copies of all my tests. And so we went. And by the time we got to the doctor's office, it's like 4.30 in the afternoon. And we're sitting in the doctor's office. He says, give me that disc. And of course, we already had the radiology results saying that you have a cyst in the uh, left portion of your throat and gave all the measurements and everything else. And he says, let me see that. And this is an ear, nose, and throat specialist. That's another thing. I went straight to a specialist. I didn't have to go get a referral. And he said, so he's sitting there going over this thing and he's going, well, I, I need to confirm the radiologist results. And I'm like, okay. He goes, I'm not a radiologist, but I was taught, I studied in Israel. I did my my internship, my residency in Israel for ear, nose, and throat. And my in Israel, they're very, very picky. And they taught me how to read MRIs. And they always told me, oh, never, always double check someone else's work. And it was it was just ingrained into me as a coming from Israel. The Israeli doctors are very, very finicky about double checking, triple checking and everything else. So I'm going to double check that what the radiologist is saying is correct. And then we'll go from there. So I said, okay, fine. So I'm sitting there in the doctor's office and I'm looking at this wall and I see this diploma from Harvard and I see another one from MIT and they're actually residencies in pediatric ear, nose and throat specialties. I mean, this guy, not only did he did it, he did his ear, nose and throat specialty in Israel And actually, I started joking around with him because he had a couple. I had just right before I retired, I did a special assignment in Jordan. So he had a lot of from the Holy Land, a lot of little souvenirs and stuff. And I joked around. I said, oh, that that looks like from I was in Jordan. And he says, oh, yeah, that's where I studied my residency. So I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I've got this world class doctor and he's sitting there reading my results right now. And he says, "Okay, look, here's the deal. From your MRI, it looks like a cyst, doesn't look cancerous. He says, but I'm going to need to take a biopsy just to make sure because I'm going to have to remove it. But you have two options. You can remove it right now. If it's not cancerous, you can wait because if it's cancerous, we need to take care of it right away, of course. But if the biopsy comes out negative, he said, if the biopsy comes out negative, you can schedule the surgery whenever you want. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay. Well, how much is the surgery, doc? I mean, just before we go any further. And he says, well, you know, this hospital is kind of expensive. It's one of the more higher end hospitals. I can practice at these other two hospitals are a little bit cheaper. And I'm like, just give me the bottom line, like the most expensive. He said, well, if you do it here, it's like about $8,000. And I'm sitting there thinking there's nowhere in the... And it's a two-day hospital stay. And I'm like, there's nowhere in the United States. You, you stay two days in a hospital and it's less than eight. And well, it's less than $8,000 a day, just a hospital, not talking about the surgery. So I'm like, okay, well, we'll do the biopsy. So he does the biopsy and he says, oh, shoot, the lab is closed down. You know what? I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to have them open up the lab for you. Because he goes, when do you need to go back home? And I said, I, well, we need to go back. We were planning on going back home tomorrow. 
no, no, no. You know what? We're going to open up the lab. And I'm going to wait here in the office. I'm going to send you downstairs to the lab. I'm going to have someone open up the lab to take the samples. And I'm going to wait here until they get the samples so that I know that they got the samples and that they can get you some type of results by tomorrow. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, sounds great. And needless to say, I got the results and they came out negative. So my wife and I, our plan was then let's complete our move to Mexico because we had already decided to move to Mexico. And that, that was in June, July. And we'll come back and we'll schedule the operation for November. And that'll give us a January move-in date for, because it was takes a little bit of time to to heal. And we can stay at my in-law's house. And I'm, I was floored in the sense that I'd rather pay for the surgery here with this specialist that's excellent than go back home and try to still fight for an MRI so they can get an operation approved to begin with. So we decided to do that. We came home. And one of the weird things was, is I said, you know what, let me call the doctor, the insurance company, because the last time I, when I was in Brazil, when I was stationed in Brazil, I remember Blue Cross Blue Shield would cover me while I was overseas. And usually with government insurance, they're pretty good about having a very comprehensive medical plan. And I had changed from Blue Cross Blue Shield. So I called up the insurance company and I said, okay, I'm going to ha have to have this operation, blah, blah, blah. And she says, yeah, that's not a problem. You just fill out this form, send me the receipts and the proof that you were in the hospital and we'll reimburse you. And I said, okay. And, oh, you said you took an MRI, right? And I said, yeah, I took an MRI. Oh, just send us the receipts and everything for that and we'll reimburse you as if you were here in the United States. I said, like at 90%, it's not the 100%. And I said, okay, do you need any kind of pre-authorizations? And she's like, no, you just send us the stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, Okay, can you explain to me why I'm still waiting for the pre-authorization on an MRI in the United States? Oh, yeah, I see that here. You're still waiting and they're still reviewing it. And I said, and this is like three months later, of course. And I said, and you're telling me that I can send you the receipts for the MRI that I already did that I'm waiting for authorization. She goes, well, how much did that MRI cost? And I said, 270 bucks. She goes, do you have any idea how much an MRI costs here in the United States? Why do you think the insurance companies fight with the doctors? Because they want to make sure that you need it. And you actually save us money by, we would rather pay out 270 bucks than have to fight with the doctor for 3000 But if it's 3000 or 4000 then we have to fight with the doctors because sometimes it's not necessary. And if it's not necessary, we only lose 270 bucks. And it's the same thing with your operation. You don't need any pre-approvals. You don't need anything. Just send us the documentation, the receipts. So needless to say, we planned our trip. We got moving companies. We did everything that we contracted the moving company, moved out of the house, got the place ready for the renters. We went to Santa Fe for a little while. We stayed there, got the house. Uh, we needed to do some repairs on the house there. And we came back in November and I did my surgery and had the sister move. The only thing is, is when I had the cyst removed, the doctor, while he was operating on me, was inside of me taking out the cyst. And there was two lymph nodes that were actually attached to my carotid artery. The doctor said, it's something very rare. I'd never seen it before. And he said, our protocol is it didn't look cancerous. It didn't look inflamed. It didn't look any, they just looked like two normal lymph nodes. He said, but the problem with lymph nodes are is that lymph nodes float. They don't stick to anything. He said, normal protocol or normal surgeons would have probably just left them in there 
because it was attached to your carotid artery. And that's a very, very delicate operation. He said, but something kept telling me, you know what? You don't need those two nymph nodes. I'm just going to take them out. So he came out, talked to my wife and says, do you mind if I take them out? I just want to get your authorization because it's going to take me another five hours or six hours because I got to scrape. He literally had to scrape with a scalpel these lymph nodes off of my carotid. He said, not only that, but I have to order blood because if I cut into the carotid, I have to fix it really quick. So needless to say, I was in surgery for close to eight hours. And the thing was after that, he decided, well, I'm going to send off the lymph nodes for pathology to the pathology department. And he calls us up and says, you know, later, a couple of days later, he says, I need to talk to you guys. We knew something was up because he didn't want to really say anything. And he goes, I really need to talk to you. So we went to the doctor's office and he says, unfortunately, those two lymph nodes tested positive for cancer. And so we're going to have to do further tests and we're going to have to start treatment right away. And I'm going to send you to an oncologist tomorrow, literally. You need to go to an oncologist tomorrow. So that's basically how I got diagnosed with cancer. Just like Mexico, it was by total accident. Uh, I don't know, destiny, you might say, but it's the same thing. They discovered my cancer operating on something totally different. And needless to say, I was very floored. Both of us were very floored. We went to the oncologist the next day. And he says, you're going to have to go through radiation treatment. It's 35 radiation treatments. He says, it's pretty brutal. He said, but you're a big guy. Don't worry about it. You can handle it. And I said, okay. So we started reading up on radiation treatments and they were saying that, was, you know, people are in feeding tubes because they can't swallow. And we started discussing these treatments with the oncologist. And he said, look, and I started thinking MD Anderson, MD Anderson in Houston, Texas is the famous cancer center in all of the United States. It's as famous as the Mayo Clinic for other things. But MD Anderson is the place to go if you have cancer, supposedly. So we started exploring, let's maybe go to MD Anderson. And the doctor told me, he goes, look, if you want to go to Houston, that's fine. And I don't have any problems. Now, my oncologist just happens to be on the board of the Oncology Association, International Oncology Association, out of, based out of France. And so this was a very well-renowned oncologist too. I mean, he wasn't just any oncologist. He says, but you want to know something? He says, quite honestly, we're going to use the same radiation equipment they're going to use on you and MD Anderson. There's no difference. As a matter of fact, he says, you want to know something? And I don't mean to brag, but we have a piece of radiation equipment that MD Anderson doesn't even have. Actually, here in Monterrey is one of the only... They only have seven of them in all of the world. And Monterrey is one of the places. It's called the Versa Machine. He goes, and not even MD Anderson has that Versa Machine. Now they do. But at that time, they didn't. He goes, so if you want to know our capabilities, I think we're pretty capable. So don't worry about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's do it. And I ended up going through 35 radiations. Didn't need a feeding tube. Didn't take an ounce of pain medication. And I got through it. And I would had to do two chemo therapies. My oncologist was kind of responsible for not putting me on a feeding tube. He says, you know what? Just deal with it. And uh, you'll thank me later. Because in that case, when you get put on a feeding tube, you forget how to swallow. And I had to just deal with it. And I had to learn how to swallow. I mean, I had to swallow my food. And that's what kept me. And I recovered probably quicker than normal. Holy moly, Ernie. Jesus. 
That's intense story, my friend. I had shivers at a couple of points when you're telling me like, I had a couple of moments where I was like, oh, that's pretty graphic. Scraping it off of the, that does not sound very fun. But when you told me that they sent it off and the results that got back literally like give me shivers because I'm sure that I just, I would find it very high, hard to believe that any doctor back home would have gone through so much and all of this and probably would have, back home probably would have stitched you up and then you would have found out later on and it would have been too late at that point. It would have been too late. But because of, the doctors that you worked with at those facilities and, and everybody that took care of you, you're here today. I mean, that's wild. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country. And the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico. And coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico, including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. Exactly, Mikhail. And I'll tell you what, that cancer was so much in its infancy, they did PET scans. They, I mean, they probed my nose and throat and everything in every way that they could. They could not find a tumor. There was actually the cancer that I was diagnosed with is, they call it ischemus type, whatever, but it's called unknown primary. And what unknown primary means is that the tumor is probably so small that it hadn't come out yet. I mean, it wasn't big enough to be even detectable. So I, they caught it at a period of time. Now I still had to go through all the radiation and basically the way the oncologist explained it to me, normally on these types of, what they do is they do what they call a full neck dissection where they take out all your lymph nodes and they take out all your lymph nodes. And basically they do this, they actually cut from here to here and take out all your lymph nodes, but there's a danger that they can cut into muscle, stuff like that. And the doctor, the oncologist said, no. We caught it at a point where we don't have to dissect the neck because what I'm going to do is basically shotgun your whole neck with radiation. So no matter where that tumor is, I'm going to probably going to kill it. I mean, more than likely you've had a, he said, I've had a 90%. I mean, you still have the 10% chance that, you know, we won't be able to, I mean, cancer is unpredictable. He said, but you're going to have a 90% chance. And if you get a neck dissection, you're only going to increase it by 2%. So there, there's no reason to cut you up. And he said, if he, if your ear, nose and throat doctor hadn't found it that early, he said, we'd probably be talking about a neck dissection by now if it would have come up later on. So I'm very fortunate. I'll tell you what, it, it's a feeling. I told somebody else on another podcast, I said, you know, I had this idea that I was going to die at 60. I mean, just because of my heart history with my, when my, my father died at my, not my father, my grandfather died at 47 of a heart attack. My grandfather, my 
mother's side died at 52 of a brain aneurysm. So, and I was in a law enforcement field where heart attack is very prevalent. And so you never think at 52 that, you know, I already had this expectation. I, I, I mean, maybe I was being a little bit pessimistic, but you never think at 52 that the first thing that goes through your mind when you hear the word cancer is I'm dead. And that's the first thing that came through both my wife's and my mind is I'm dead. But luckily it worked out great. And I'm still here today. And I'm happy to say that I'm not out of the woods yet because I still have to get, I think at five years is when they actually declare you cancer, cancer free, but I'm almost there. I'm almost there. And every single PET scan is coming out better and better. And actually haven't had the cancer come back at all. It's an amazing story, Ernie. Truly amazing. And who knows if maybe it was fate that you were going to die at 60, but now you've skipped that. This was the thing that was going to get you early. And now you've taken care of it. You've gotten rid of it. And who knows? Maybe now you're going to live to 90. Now you're going to live to 80. I mean, good for you. That's amazing. Yeah. And and like I said, you take a whole different perspective on life. I bet. I, I had a perspective from the sense that, you know, my dad had a heart attack at 62. My dad lived till he was 80, some 83. He lived mm-hmm. a long life. He lived, but my dad lived from 62 to 83 on about 30% of his heart. My dad had a heart attack when he was 62 and he didn't even know he was having a heart attack. He basically had cold symptoms and the heart attack damaged his heart so much that he lived on 30% of his heart for several years up. I mean, from 62 to 83, that's of course a lot of years that he lived on 30% of his heart. And so I had a perspective already that, you know, I needed to appreciate life and I needed to appreciate things and I needed to appreciate the things that I have, but you don't get that perspective until you something really drastic, like cancer comes along and, you're actually facing it in the face. One thing is to say, I'm going to die at 60 or I'm going to have a heart attack at 60. I'm not even going to say I'm going to die at 60, but one thing is to say, I'm going to have a heart attack at 60. And another thing is to actually have that heart attack and actually have to experience what it is to say, you know what, shoot, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I live my life to its fullest in those sense? You know, and and that's one of the things that, you know, both my wife and I, we I think one of the things I tell everybody is that when you live your life, the only thing you're going to take away when you die is your experiences. That's the only thing you take with you. You don't take anything else. And the only thing anybody's going to do or anybody's going to live with, you know, yeah, you might leave your house to your kids or your possessions to your loved ones or whatever, but those possessions, they eventually wear out. And the only thing that your kids or anybody else or your loved ones are going to end up with is your memory, is memories of you. So it's very important, I always say, to live those experiences and to the fullest because that's what you're going to take with you when you leave. Yep, absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, I've built my entire life on exploring the world and, and trying to understand how things fit together and people from different perspectives and and try to, to figure everything out. And that, that's all based on experiences. You know, I think before I met my wife or when I met my wife, I had like nothing. Like I literally was living out of a bag for the, the previous 15 years. Now I have a full house and stuff because I've got kids and the wife and, and a home base and things like that. But absolutely, I agree with you that spending your energy on experiences and especially with family, there's a lot to be said with that. And I think that Latin America is an excellent place for this because there's just this 
we don't have this same type of keeping up with the Joneses type of mentality in Latin America, where everything is more focused on family and friends and good food and music and being outdoors and going to the beach and, and all these types of things. So no, that's an amazing story, Ernie. And I had all these plans. We were going to be talking about your backstory and your history in law enforcement and catching bad guys, like legit bad guys, not just like, <laughs> like some pretty wild stuff you've done. But, but I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised with the, how the conversation has gone today and learning about your story and what you've had to overcome and just your experiences working through the medical system in Mexico and really the differences between what exists back home in, in your case, in the United States, in my case, in Canada. I can say that if the whole thing happened in Canada, opposed to the United States, it probably would have taken four times as long. Even three months would probably be pretty quick to get an MRI back home, Wow, I think. So it's very, very slow. But a lot of people are understanding medical tourism and not just medical tourism for cosmetic surgery, but medical tourism for things like this and heading down to Latin America with very highly trained doctors who often speak really excellent English and have fantastic facilities and medical equipment there. And you can get things taken care of much sooner because I'm, as we said before, I'm sure if they had found your cancer two years later or three years later, the story would be very, very different of you know, your lifespan after that and your quality of life. But because they caught it so quickly, I mean, now we get to sit here and, and have this conversation. You get to share these things. And so it's just wild. Most definitely, Mikel. And, you know, I was, you know, you talk about my adventures in law enforcement and, you know, I, I can't say that I didn't come close, have some close calls in my career. But a lot of times I was so pumped up on adrenaline and when things happen and those close calls happen, it, there was more like, wow, do you know, do you realize just what, what just happened? Wow. That, you know, you kind of didn't take it seriously. And, you know, now looking back, I start thinking of those close calls and it's like, wow, I could have been gone in a second if something hadn't gone my way. And those are the things, you know, like I said, I had a blast in my career. I can't say that I don't have a single, I know a lot of people the big thing that I see with retirees and people coming to Mexico and everything else is it's a lot of people that want to escape the rat race. And I'm not necessarily a person that wanted to escape the rat race. I could have stayed to 57 and I wanted to stay to 57. And, you know, like I told you, my dad always told me, if you find something that you have a passion for, you know, you're never going to work a day in your life. And it's very true. I never worked a day in my life, but at the same time, you need to balance those passions too. And it goes for anybody. I, I, I've spoken, it's really funny, Mikhail. I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs that are very successful. And one of the things that a real good friend of mine, that's a very, very successful entrepreneur, I talked to him and we talk about you know, like entrepreneurship and you kind of think it's all about the money because these guys are making a lot of money. I'm making a lot of, you know, I'm like, you know, you're very successful. And one of the things that I found in a common denominator and most successful, very successful entrepreneurs, it's not about the money. It's about chasing the idea. In other words, I have an idea. I'm going to take this idea and I'm going to work with it. Now the money is the reward. Maybe it's even the gauge of how well I did. But at the same time, when we were talking about, 
success, the money is not important. It's the success of the idea. It's the success that I took this business and I put it in a place where I wanted it to be. And the goals are all about getting to that next level. And that's one thing that I think we all need to understand. And and I think the problem with a lot of retirees and stuff is I work this job that I go to nine to five every day and I just want to get out. And one of the things that I always tell people when you retire, find that passion, find something that you're going to love, even if you don't make any money at it. You know what I'm doing now? I don't make any money. Mikhail, quite honestly, as a matter of fact, I even make it a nonprofit project, but it's something that I'm enjoying. I'm loving. I'm, I'm having fun. And you know, I even talked to a friend of mine that almost went into the pros in, in football. And he used to tell me, you know, the day, he, actually, the reason why he didn't go into the pro professional football league or in the NFL is because he said it was no longer fun. Playing football was no longer fun. For me, playing football was everything. But the day it became no longer fun is the day I quit. And he quit. And that's what I think needs and more people need to really understand that and really go out there, find something that you're passionate about and just go for it. Amazing. Ernie, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to follow the YouTube channel, where can we send them? I have a YouTube channel. It's called Retired Life in Mexico Noble. Basically, it's a nonprofit project. You can also find me in Facebook. I have a private Facebook group. My goal is to help people that are interested in moving or relocating to Mexico. And I go over everything from security. I have videos on everything. We talked about the security situation in, in Mexico. I talk about security coming from somebody that worked in the security field and the protection field. I talk about the, the intricacies of moving to Mexico, the culture, uh, what you might face when moving to Mexico. So I do videos. I do live streams. It's totally free. And I even do consultations on Zoom or prospective people that want to move and they're free, totally free. And that's what I'm doing now. And I'm enjoying it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ernie. And I'll talk to you soon. For those interested in moving to another country, I highly recommend learning the local language before you arrive. After traveling for the last 23 years straight, I have seen many people fall into the expat bubble trap. This is where you move to a new country and you only talk to people from the USA or Canada and you are unable to make local friends. The best way to combat this is by having an understanding of the local language. And the best program I have ever seen for this is storylearningcourses.com. These are the programs I use to go from very crummy language skills to fluent in no time flat. The courses are fun and easy to understand and most importantly, really work. No matter where you are in your language learning abilities, go to storylearningcourses.com. That's storylearningcourses.com to learn more. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, 
Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.